0: You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms, Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction annie highwater and Lori McDougal have been through years of their loved one's active addiction they have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one during these conversations Lori and annie address the questions and concerns brought up by allies and recovery members and now coming up for air with Lori mcdougall and annie highwater
1: I want to get right to it. I am super excited to have Sam Quinones, I hope I said it correctly, the LA writer who is the author of one of my absolute favorite books, a brilliant book called Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. I just want to get right to it because your work has been so important. It's deeply personal for Ohioans because it really tells our stories and describes and validates what we have lived. So much of it is our worst fears and grief written right out on the page and as it happened. And I personally know I felt alone and like I was one of the only families going through it and, and I was silenced during so many of the years that addiction was developing in some of my closest family members during what the book called The Gathering Storm of It. Your book is literally about... My hometown and my people. So, I personally, first of all, cannot thank you enough for this brilliant work and for coming on the podcast. So, welcome, Sam Quinones.
2: Oh, you're welcome, and I, I appreciate it. I, I saw that myself. In fact, uh, when I was writing the book, I just had a, a terrible time finding people who wanted to talk about it. Everybody wanted to keep it quiet. The obituaries, I remember, were always. I suspected most of more fabrications. Nobody told the truth, really, about this. Everyone was ashamed. Everyone was uh, hidden, isolated. Everyone believed themselves alone, just as you did. And and I think that's what's changed. It's a, it's a fascinating thing to watch, but a very healthy, too, I have to say. It's now out there more than it ever was before.
1: Oh yeah, I would agree. And actually, ironically, a man that I had worked with had overdosed. He had been my boss a few years ago. He had overdosed and the family called it natural causes. And I had found out that they can call it that in the obituaries when it's an actual overdose. So yeah, I think those things are changing. Like I said, I know so many of the people that are featured in this book. I've actually been in the rooms with some of these people. My son was in one of the treatment centers that was named. He had developed a dependency after a football injury. And so it was surreal to read it. Um, And my mom visited one of the pain clinics. So just speaking my language, I first of all, wanted to hit on the fact that it's written kind of threaded around the Dreamland pool. I thought that was genius, that it was named after that pool in Portsmouth. We had a pool in our town that closed down about 15 years ago. And like I had told you, ironically, It was cemented over and dugouts were put on top of it. And my son hit grand slams from there as a kid. And that was where he lived for a few days when he was in active use before treatment. He stayed in a dugout that was on top of that cemented pool. So if you could tell us a little bit about how you came up with that idea and started from there.
2: Sure. You know, it was not my original idea. I did not know when I started the book of the existence of uh, of a pool called Dreamland in the town of Portsmouth, Ohio. It uh, very often when uh, I think journalism works best when you are very uh, flexible and willing to f- let the facts take you in a different direction than you initially intended. Um, I originally intended this to be a book almost entirely about drug addiction, drug trafficking, and drug marketing, mostly. You know, from heroin dealers and also uh, drug companies. But as time went on, I began to realize that there were other themes that were deeper than that, that all that was part of the story, but there were other things as well and and much deeper. And then we'll get to uh, some cultural aspects of, our, of this story that I th- found most important. And that one of them was that we had done a lot to destroy community in many, many, many ways all across this country. So we had Built suburbs where everyone kind of lived alone, even though they were in very nice houses. We had uh, jobs had gone overseas. Communities had been devastated. Their main streets kind of hollowed out. Walmart and the the, the various other effects like that. And uh, I began to believe that this was actually a major issue, a big a root cause of this, uh, perhaps the root cause of this whole problem. That we had done so much to isolate ourselves and and damage ourselves and destroy community. And it was in then then I began to hear about this pool. The more time I spent in the town of Portsmouth, Ohio, the more I began to hear about this pool that had once existed years before. And I think the crucial moment came when I put up on Facebook, a Portsmouth Facebook page, a request saying, hey, I've heard about this pool called Dreamland. Can you tell me whatever stories anyone remembers about it? Can you just chime in, you know. And that went on for three days. There were long, long posts about. Oh my goodness! I remember the copper tone. I remember the radio. <laughs> I remember the the A and W root beer nearby and the the, the French fries. That first kiss at this pool. Dreamland was where we all grew up, and it was this it was this magical place. But what was magical about it, of course, was that was where everybody saw each other. Everybody grew up. There was a tight knit community formed around. That swimming pool, and then it all went away. Once the jobs left, the people left, Main Street emptied out. After a while, they could not support the, te- the pool, and it was also dug up. Instead of a, a baseball diamond, though, it was replaced by really a fairly ugly, in um, my opinion, a useless strip mall, basically a sea of asphalt. And it, at that point, uh, once that happened, within a couple of years after that, the pills, opioid painkiller uh, epidemic really began to, to consume the town of Portsmouth, and a part of that, I believe, a lot of reasons for it, of course, but one of them is that there was no longer the community, the the tight-knit community that had existed before. Half the people had left, the jobs had gone, and now you didn't have the place where everybody communed, saw each other, you know, daily basis. Everyone would spend the summers, basically, at this pool. The kids grew up there. Mothers would watch every kid, not just their their own, you know. And so, to me, Dreamland uh, seemed like this... The metaphor, kind of a stand-in for what we have done to community in America in many, many, many ways, not just with regard to swimming pools, of course, all across the country and what left us, therefore, vulnerable to this very powerful uh, drug epidemic that then came in and and took a lot of us with it and and a, a good generation or two, really, of the people in Portsmouth where it eventually grew addicted. But so, so I really use it as a way of saying, this is the deeper story. This is what's going on here. We have destroyed community and this dreamland pool and this one small town is just a, a symbol of that.
1: Yeah, there's so, so much connection and irony. My mother, like I said, developed an addiction after a car accident. And I was actually at Twin Towers, our swimming pool, when someone came to pick me up and tell me, to tell me she was in the trauma unit. And that began a 35-year Sort of romance that she's had, and you know, affected my family definitely during those years. So it's just it's so ironic to me, and it's so profoundly true. And it's amazing how the more people are coming forward and talking, our stories are. You know, the details vary, but the dynamics are so similar.
2: Yes, and and that's what's also that's what I also found interesting that you have a story. If if one town doesn't have a pool, maybe it's it's another story. But it's it always seems to get back to ways in which we have isolated ourselves, ways in which we have have turned our back on community, not funded with a community, or, or just actively destroyed it in some way. Some, and frequently it has to do with some facility, some place where we got together. You know, so maybe it's Main Street, maybe it's Main Street in a downtown plaza, that kind of thing no longer exists. You know, all of that, it just seems like you see this story kind of repeated over and over and over and you know the truth is too it's not just in in rust belt communities like Portsmouth went through a rust belt phenomenon beginning in the in the 80s and, and into perhaps even to, to, today it's also in fairly well to do communities where where basically you just don't know anybody you don't see anybody you have these well wealth, very wealthy families doing very well and yet they don't nobody knows them they don't know anybody. They, they oftentimes have very large houses, so the kids are separated from the parents. You know, it's not just, uh, this, is, this is early on, people say, well, this is an economic issue. And I don't think so. I think it's, it's the common denominator is isolation, not economics. And that means it affects so many different class levels, of, uh, economic class levels in this, in this country. And that's what it goes from coast to coast. And that is also why, what makes it very different from other uh, drug plagues that we've had in this country.
1: Um, Yeah, you know, I was going to, as a side note, I wanted your take on this. I spoke with our Franklin County coroner last week, and she was saying how social media and technology plays into this gathering storm as well, and that they, social media strengthened the process of drug trafficking because they have technology and better ways of communicating. I also wonder if social media and technology weakened community.
2: I think what it did was allow us to pretend that we were in some kind of community which really it is not. There's no such thing as a face a face a friend on Facebook is hardly a friend most of the time, right? It's somebody <laughs> maybe you've, you've encountered or maybe not, you know. I think also what it's done is polarized us in a very extreme ways. Like I now for a while now have, have just stopped altogether getting involved in political arguments on oh, yes. Facebook. I just don't do it. Uh, I don't see any point to it. It's a waste of time. But what it does do is is force us into little bubbles. Uh, uh, the people that believe and talk and think like us, we like to hang out with them on social media. People who don't, we love to snipe at them and, and yeah. use hateful language. Why? Because they're not sitting in front of us. You don't see a real human yeah. being in front of you. You feel, you feel you can behave in any kind of ghastly way just because that's a person who doesn't think like you and that person is not sitting right, right in front of you you know we have a very different way of t- t- talking to people when we actually have to encounter them as human beings rather than as some uh handle on twitter or something like that you know it's it's so much easier to to be uh, rude and abrasive and insulting uh to people you you're never going to see you know and so right. to me that's that's a, another way in which it's it's so been so corrosive to uh, our own kind of connection. Even though it connects us in a very superficial way, it, it really uh, divides us in far deeper ways, I think, and, and the ways that really, I guess you would say, the ways that really count. It divides us uh, horribly. And Facebook, of course, uh, famously, and I think very da- in a very damaging way, uh, only sends you, you posts uh, that you, you're most likely to agree with Yeah, and uh, and I think that that's also bad. You you get this idea that there's just a bunch of people who agree like think like you, and you never encounter any other perspective. And then when you do, it's easier to like uh, insult them. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I agree with all of that. I can happily say I have intentionally not once engaged publicly or online in an argument like that because I just. I've never liked anything like good,
2: that. Good so. for you. I don't see, there's, they're pointless, you know, like who, how right. many people, there's that famous graph, a big graph, a pie chart, 100% red. That's the <laughs> number of people um, who have, the number of people that you have not convinced of your perspective <laughs> yes. on Facebook in an argument is 100%, you know. So. I would
1: agree. And when you put somebody on blast as well, I see a lot of that. I think that's an unfair way to try to win an argument. So I just think we need to come above all of that. Um, I,
2: I, just, I use social media now almost exclusively. I think they're very good tools for using as uh, news services. Hey, yes. this is a good story. I think this is an interesting story. Read it. This story out. I don't do almost use it for almost any other thing now. I I I don't see that it, it works any other way.
1: I agree. It's not super friendly, and it's a great way to communicate, not a great way to
2: connect. That's that's true. That is uh, probably the best way to describe it. Really, you don't have a feeling that you're actually connecting with people. So the way I do it, I look for people who are going to send me stories that I think are interesting, whether I agree with the point of the story or not, or I just want to have interesting stories curated for me and sent to me. That's kind of how I use it now. Yeah. Respectable.
1: I loved a couple of times, I think in dreamland that you caught Ohio. I didn't love it, but I found it to be true that you caught Ohio ground zero for the opiate scourge. And because Uh it's my hometown, I couldn't agree more. So I have some questions from a couple of listeners, but I want them to be relatable. One of the first things I thought was interesting was the concept of small town jealousy. If you remember writing about how that was a dynamic that one of the cartels considered carefully yeah. and planned around. Do you remember that portion?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, to me, small towns are interesting places. They have a lot of beauty to them. They have a lot of uh, simplicity to them, which is a good thing. And but there's also a lot of a lot of envy, a lot of gossiping, and it's easy to gossip about people and make. And and so to me, I, I've I saw this a lot in Mexico, all across Mexico. This is one of the great problems. In my opinion, one of the great problems of Mexico is envy at that small village level. It, it tends to destroy people. People get torn apart by it. And, so, and it's also a big reason why people emigrate to the United States, because once one person has gone north, comes back and builds himself a house that's better than what he used to have pretty soon. Everyone goes, wow, I got to get that. And then, then there's almost like a keeping up with the Joneses kind of competition that goes on. You can see this all over Mexico. My second book was basically about that phenomenon uh, about Mexico and, and, and that uh, everybody starts building bigger and bigger houses, you know, and it's limited by the fact that in most towns, people do not deal drugs. They are, they are, have jobs as landscapers or construction workers or factory workers, or what have you. But in this one town, everybody had access to drug profits. And so pretty, and, and that I read about in Dreamland. And so everybody became kind of like very competitive. And there was a lot of, well, I have this, well, I can get, I'm going to buy that. and And everybody wanted to be you know, seen as this person of respect. So envy is a big part of what I believe is behind a lot of what goes on, particularly in small town Mexico, which is, of course, the the Mexico that has come to the United States.
1: Yeah, and you can definitely tell, like, some people are just not going to clap from you, clap for you where you come from. It's just not going to happen. Right. I thought it was so interesting that they set up a business model around n- having knowledge of that. And yeah, that said, yes. one of the listener questions was that you personalized the stories, even when it came to the mules, the quote mules and law enforcement, dealers and addicts and stuff, to even find out that they worked around that. How did you, how were you able to draw compelling stories and know them on a personal level to where they trusted you and were so forthcoming?
2: Well, it helped see that, that I started this book. I didn't know anything about healthcare. I didn't know any, I didn't know what an OxyContin was. I didn't know what Vicodin was, but I did know a lot about Mexico. I had spent ten years living in Mexico, uh, writing about Mexico. I wrote two books about the country. I'd been to many, many villages. Small. T- I spent a lot of time writing about immigration. That that helped enormously. I had spent uh, years in the and and, and going to small the smallest villages in the states that have sent most people to the United States, and so I knew there. Background. I knew the the rancho. You know the small little village. I knew a lot about it. I knew that from there came very very hardworking people. People who, for whom, work ethic was basically how they define themselves. They, I'm the hard worker. That, but also. You had some negative things as well, envy being one, of course, a real uh, old world feeling about uh, educating girls, like, what's the point? They're just going to get married, so forget <laughs> it. You know? uh, there was not a lot of union. There was not a lot of unity among the folks there, too. There was a lot of backbiting and, and that kind of thing. So I knew a lot of... Uh, then the other thing that, uh, that I, I have done for many years in my career is I don't just stop with talking to cops and prosecutors. Uh, or judges, I try to then reach out to people in prison and jail. And it's very, very important to do that. And especially because I speak Spanish fluently and I lived in Mexico. So all of that was made, getting to know certain of these folks uh, made it possible. Now, I got names of of the people who had been in prison, who were in prison, in federal prison, been arrested in some sweep or some uh, targeted investigation. And I began to write to them, and they were guys from this village. I was pretty sure of. And I began to write to them in prison, and you get about the same response as you get to direct mail. You know, like six to ten percent write you back. You know, yeah. And I, but that's enough. That's 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 a very nice response rate. You have eight or ten or twelve. I think eventually talk to twelve people from the town, and some of them in enormous depth. And after a while, you're like, wow, I, I, okay, that's what I need. You know. And it helped that I had had written a lot about Mexico, that I spoke fluent Spanish. It also helped, one other thing helped, and that was that in my first book, on the cover of my first book, and and the first chapter in the book, is a story about a guy named Chalino Sanchez. Chalino Sanchez was an immigrant, poor immigrant kid from the drug trafficking regions of, uh, of Mexico from Sinaloa, and he came north basically after killing a guy at a... At a party, a guy who had abused his sister, he becomes a singer, a singer of ballads, of corridos, as they're called in Spanish, ballads about guys from his home area, his region around where he, he lived. He became hugely famous. He himself was murdered after a concert. He mostly made his career up here in, in the United States, but then he went down to Mexico for one uh, a show, a couple of shows, and he was killed uh, leaving the show by guys who took him off and the kidnapped him, basically left him in a, <laughs> in a field. That guy became, though, the importance of that fellow. I wrote the only story about this guy. He ha- is now, safe to say, that he is the, to the cartel or the drug trafficking world in Mexico. He has the same uh, reputation and fame and uh, adoration as like the Italian mob viewed Frank Sinatra. Wow. He's like, one well, of these guys where whoa, everybody wants. And so I was able to send these guys stories in Spanish because my book was translated in Spanish. And they would go, oh, my God, that guy's written about Chalino? Wow, that's, a, that's very, I mean, so a, a lot of guys, the few guys that, res, that responded, most of them mentioned that, that I had written about Chalino and stuff, and I lived in Mexico and stuff. And, so, and then after I got to know him, they became, it became clear to them that I actually knew quite a bit about Mexico and I'd been to more parts of Mexico than they had and that kind of thing. And that also helped that I was not like a rookie, you know, that I had been spent a lot of, invested a lot of my energy and time and a career in trying to understand their country and their background. And so it, it became easier uh, to know these guys that way.
1: How long did all of that take you in the process of gathering everything for this book? Because it's intensely in depth.
2: Yes. Um, well, it, it, it helped see that I did not have, I did have a learning curve for pain management and healthcare and OxyContin and all that, but I had very little learning curve for the Mexican stuff. And so I knew it. I came to the book with a very high level of knowledge okay. of what of life in Mexico and drug trafficking and immigration and all that stuff. So that was one part of the book that I knew a lot of. And I could ask very pointed questions that would give me a lot of information very quickly. And they've picked up on that. People knew, understood after a while that I knew what I was talking about, you know, and then the other stuff took longer. It took, but it all told about two and a half years of writing and researching. And, and that was pretty much how I, uh, that's about how long it, it, it took. Uh, it helped that I, that when, when it came to the pain research, that I found certain people who are very, very good at explaining a lot. And so I didn't have to go to person after person after person. There were a few folks who told me, for example, one professor here in UCLA, Marcia uh, Meldrum. She was a professor of the history of pain and pain treatment, and wow, she could tell me the whole. Th- and she was extraordinarily helpful, you know. So that kind of condensed the amount of research that I had to do. Uh, I didn't have to find many people to talk with. One person did it all. But then there was there was a yeah, there was a ton of people to talk to. It was it was a very research laden thing. But the thing was then as I got done with beginning that and in the middle of that, I began to realize that it didn't matter how much research I did if I didn't tell the story in the right way. And if the story, if I didn't put a lot of thought into how to tell the story and not to make it a big thick book, it's struggle. You struggle to get through. And that's why I kept the chapter short and I wanted every chapter to end and like a like an end of a TV show where you're going, oh man, what happened next? Yeah. And well, you gotta wait for next. You gotta read it on, and then you'll know. And so keep reading, and so it kind of pulls readers through instead of treating a lot of, you know, I put. I remember before I started, I put on my uh, kitchen table about five or six books that I owned or from the library and that kind of thing. And I read really not researched them, and none of them had sold very well. And all about heroin, everyone about heroin. I was like, why had those sold well? Well, the first reason is because it's a very dense, depressing topic. That's number one. And number two is that they, the authors, uh, very good books, a lot of research, they didn't put a lot of uh, time into, into thinking about how best to tell the story and how to lighten the load for the reader and how, have the reader become actively engaged in wanting to know the next step or the next thing that happens. And so I felt that that was crucial that I could end up with a book nobody wanted to read if I did that. Yeah. So I didn't. I, I fashioned something that was more, that I hoped. This was a hope because I'd never done this before. I hoped it would be more engaging. And I have to say, I'm very, very happy to say that in judging from the the messages I get on a variety of media, Facebook or email or Twitter, or whatever, that approach really, really worked well. People responded enormously to that and they they binge read. I have four or five emails where people say, I I binge read your book, man. I just I couldn't, I wanted to read the next chapter and I stayed up till one in the morning reading the next chapter. And then I'll just one more chapter. Why? Because the chapters are three or four pages. And it doesn't take a huge investment of time. It's not 20, 30 pages, that kind of thing. And so that that was part of the structure. That was part of the, the creation of the book as well.
1: I was so, it was so well done. I would say captivating. And I read it, but then I, I, then I listened to it on audio book and took notes from it. So either way, both of them, it's of course, I like to have something in my hands to read, but if it just absolutely pulls you through and goes quick for how lengthy it is, but it covers right. so much ground. And I think what's so fascinating is it tells all of our stories. Every family's story is in there in some way.
2: Right. And, and as I got into it, I began to realize, see, when I started the book, I didn't have any of that. I didn't understand the devastation that it, it, addiction creates to uh, f- family members, parents and what have you, grandparents, siblings, et cetera. It just wasn't part of where I was going with the book, you know? But yeah, almost right, right, out the bat, I, I, right off the bat, I had to realize, no, no, oh, wow, I blew it. That's not, I need to go that way. I need to include major chunks on parents and how they're having to deal with it. It was just not something, because I was all about drug trafficking. That's what I thought this story was about. And yeah. very quickly began to realize that there were other aspects to it that are much larger. And one being this community aspect, the other being the torment that is visited on family members. It's one person gets addicted, but who knows, 10, 12, 15 people could could be caught up in this like this horrible torment. Oh, that lasts years, you know. And that was not something I knew. But but the thing about journalism that I love, deeply love, and I think it was on display here in this book is that when you allow the facts to take you, like lift you and and transport you like an ocean current, they take you somewhere you're not expecting. You just let, and you don't hold tenaciously to some idea that you started out with that may be more or less true. It was true. But there's more there that you want to say. And so that's what happened with Dreamland. When I started, when I wrote my book proposal, I did not include the word Dreamland in the whole thing. There was no idea that 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 thing existed. It was only along the way that I began to figure out the more you talk to people, the more places you go, the more interviews and the more reports you read and the more perspectives, really, it's the more perspectives you hear. It, it ends up sending you someplace. And that's what the real exciting, that's what's get, when it gets so exciting, journalism gets so exciting, when you just allow facts to take you somewhere. And then they take you where they're going to take you, you know, uh, and, and you have to be your only responsibility is to the facts. And not to what you originally thought, and then of course also to allow that to happen, to not hold tenaciously to some idea that you didn't know about, because that's I, this is how I started the book, so i have got to be fixed on this. No, let it let it take you somewhere else, and and you get some very beautiful experiences that way. I've, I've and, and I've it's not the first time that's happened to me, but I'm always convinced of it after when it does happen. Like wow, that was a such a very good idea to do that, you know.
1: Yeah. Brilliantly done. It wasn't. And I cannot say that I've heard that so many times because definitely my family has been devoured by addiction entering it. It changes the trajectory the family's on. But I've heard from people who enter into this work through law enforcement or something or other leads them into it. And they don't really have so much of a close personal connection, but they just, their eyes are open when they spend time around these families to how amazing these families are. And then they become compassionate And passionate. So I think that that's absolutely part of it.
2: That's kind of what happened with me. I mean, I don't have any, I was addicted to nicotine, you know, once. And there's no other addiction in my family that I know of. I'm pretty clear on that. And so it was simply getting to know folks along the way. And I began to realize, oh my God, this is another part of the story I'd never considered. And had to consider
0: it.
1: While I'm thinking about it, successful intervention strategies to help a loved one deal with his or her substance use are often counterintuitive. Our sponsor, alliesinrecovery.net, offers suggestions that have been proven effective in getting loved ones into treatment and helping them stay there. While reducing the stress, blame, and guilt we so often feel, I encourage listeners to join alliesinrecovery.net today. So, as you were saying... The pain epidemic is, is mentioned in the book. And I was I thought it was interesting. You know, I listened to all of Dr. Drew's podcast and I know you were on there. He talks about the trauma epidemic. And my family definitely comes, you know, through some of that, the sixties and seventies. It was a strange era and there was a lot of family trauma. I wonder if those are kind of parallel to each other. And it talked about patients needing to be responsible for their own pain, but they didn't see it that way. So can you kind of touch on those things?
2: Um, yeah. I mean, I think I'll leave it to Dr. Drew to talk about the trauma epidemic. Uh, to me, that's not kind of where I s- spent a lot of time. And so I prefer not to, I do believe too, though, that, that, that a big part of this, uh, this scourge came from our desire to fix all of our pain. It was, uh, we didn't, uh, there was this idea that they, we, we didn't want pain. We were entitled to, to a life free of pain. And that also that doctors ought to be there to to take care of our pain and, and really different from other generations where pain was something you just dealt with and it wasn't, you know, it was just part of life. It wasn't pleasant necessarily, but you didn't demand that someone fix it and, and cure it completely and a pill for everything, you know, and that kind of thing. And that was kind of an attitude. Also, there was this attitude, I think, that I think doctors have expressed to me that it didn't, when they would tell people You know, uh, part of your pain is that you're overweight, or part of your pain is that you eat poorly, part of your pain is that you drink, you smoke, you don't get any exercise. All of this requiring work on our parts. American health consumers needed to understand that we needed to work to make sure that part of chronic pain really is that you you uh, in some people's cases anyway is that you you sit we sit around too much we don't we don't have active lives doctors would say this and didn't want and people would not want to hear it they just yeah. didn't want not want to hear it I'm not you know that's hard where I don't want to do that or if they'd listen to it they wouldn't act on it. You know, they wouldn't say, yeah, okay, I've got to get more exercise. I've got to eat better. I've got to look at the label. I've got to stop. You know, when I, in the middle of this book, I began to realize too, that that was also part of the story. I did not realize that when I started the book, I began to realize my own personal behavior is part of this story and I need to work on that. So I stopped, for example, I stopped drinking. I just don't drink sodas anymore. Sweet, heavily sugared drinks, a big way of cutting out a lot of sugar in your life, a wonderful way of getting rid of that dope. I stopped drinking sodas. I stopped drinking. I used to drink Coca-Cola fairly regularly, actually. And I just don't drink it anymore. That was the one thing I drank a lot. And, and you know, I began to pay more, a lot more attention to what I ate, more vegetables, more fruit, uh, far less, very rarely do I eat deep fried stuff anymore, you know, that kind of stuff. I began to say, this is caused by, yeah, pharmaceutical companies, sure. Drug traffickers, sure. But, you know, when it gets down to it, a lot of it has to do with our own choices, our own ability, whether a desire or, or willingness to actually be adult about it and say, "No, it doesn't make any sense logical adult sense to say, "A uh, one pill will create will solve all my problems." as and I think a lot of Americans got into that thing, and, and, and really it does make a lot more sense that if I watch what I eat, if I pay a lot more attention to eating a wholesome. Uh, natural foods or organic foods. But even if it's not organic, at least food that is, is raw, vegetables, fruit, grains, all that kind of stuff, focus on that and get exercise and walk more and, and be out of the house and stop smoking for goodness sake. Stop drinking sugary crapola. A lot of that will help our own lives, our own bodies, and we will not feel the need we will not have, you know, these bodies that, that are seemingly just kind of crumbling and in pain a lot. And so to me, that was another thing that that along the way I began to realize. It was kind of as much, the book was almost as much a, a story of exploration for me personally as it was for as, well as anything else.
1: One chapter I loved, I loved so much because I watched this in my own life. I have brothers, I have a mother who has had trauma in her past and some mental issues, and then she developed um, her addiction, a lot of her decisions are fear-based. And I would watch her be codependent with my brothers. And then she became that way to an extreme with my son. You talked about self-esteem coming from one thing, accomplishment, and how yeah. kids were handed things they didn't have to work for. And opiate addiction was then thrown in the middle of that. And it crippled their maturity. Your book says, the brain cannot develop when someone is being rescued their mistakes and the family becomes as addicted to rescuing as the addict is to opiates i love this section so much because i fought for that with my own son i went to the opposite degree that i fought for him to be responsible and have character and i had to have him know i wasn't going to come to the rescue but that instead he had to learn to fight to survive on his own and you know he went across Uh, country to seek treatment and he built a life for himself out, out there on his own and six years later he's thriving and has community out there and did that on his own at 21. And I felt like doing that for him when he was little, teaching him, I wasn't going to wipe off every scrape and come to the rescue constantly. I wasn't going to chase down a teacher that didn't treat you fair, shout at a coach that didn't put you in. You got to work these things out. That paid off in the long run and you hit on that. And I think that concept is so critical for my son's generation, but even more for the parents and grandparents.
2: I totally agree, and and a lot of that again came from wonderful conversations I would have. And one of those was with uh, Ed Hughes, who was a drug counselor in um, in the city in the town of Portsmouth, Ohio. You know, it, a part of being a reporter, it's the reporter's job is is hard. It's actually simple though. It's simple but hard. And that is, you find the people who know more than you, and you drain them. You just talk to them and and get to know them and and learn from them. So it's a constant learning process. And Ed. Uh, Hughes and Portsmouth was one of those folks I learned an enormous amount a lot of, uh, from and he was also one of those folks who began to alert me to the larger themes at work here like yes yeah, like like we keep kids inside all the time you go on these streets and they're nice middle-class streets and nobody's outside big difference from when I was growing up yeah. everybody was outside I lived in Southern California you know there's no no bad weather in 10 months of the year and then all the, and and so everyone was outside and that's a great place to be in the way we should be. You know, it's like the park, They're playing basketball, baseball, riding bikes, whatever. It was great. It was a wonderful way to grow, uh, grow up. Now every, every kid's inside. And, they, and now we wonder why we have diagnoses of uh, ADHD or defense, def, attention deficit disorder, you know. Well, I know why. So many kids are inside. They're not running, particularly boys. Yeah. I've said this in a certain speeches. I can say this because I was one and I know. Boys are like dogs. They need to be out running every day, (laughs) like every day, literally every day. And when they don't, they go crazy. Dogs get cooped up. I saw a dog cooped up, was a next-door neighbor for many years. The dog was insane because the people never let the dog out. It was only in the little concrete yard uh, that they had they never took them for walks, never went outside. Now, boys are like that too. Girls probably as well, but I just, I was a boy, so I know that this is something that is very, very damaging to to boys. And then we say, gee, why are they acting up in school? Or why are they like climbing the walls? Or they must need a pill. No, they need to be outside running. That's what they need. They need to be outside just working out and, and working all that energy out and on skateboards or whatever, it doesn't really even matter so much what they, what they do. So out they're out there running, riding bikes, whatever. And, in, and instead we give them pills. We, you know, God forbid they be outside because they might have to compete or they might skin their knee or there, there, there might be some difficult situation they'll have to encounter. I always thought that was a good thing, you know, playing, playing football with, with my, with my friends, you know, I get tackled hard. Yeah. Okay. Tough luck. Yeah. That's the way it goes. I was fine with it, you know? And, and, and no pads. We didn't have any. It was a tackle football with, without any pads at all, I remember playing, you know, <laughs> just like the way you do it. And, um, and so to me, it felt like this was an entire, this whole epidemic of drug opioid drug use was kind of grew from that, grew from this whole generational thing of, of not going outside, being afraid to go outside, not wanting to go outside. And, you know, in my daughter's case, I'm always pushing her to go outside. But the other problem is that we have a culture where there is no critical mass of kids outside. So my daughter always goes, why should I go outside, Daddy? There's nobody there. And you know, I can't <laughs> argue with that. She's correct. There is nobody outside. So you go outside. What do you do? Uh, you're kind of sigh. I wish she wishes there were kids outside to play with, and there aren't. And it's a sad, it's a sad thing. It's kind of what you see all across the country.
1: I agree with that. I remember when my son was coming up, I took him hiking every Sunday that there was decent enough weather. And when he moved out to California, that's something he still continues to do. He'll go to Arizona for the weekend or Joshua Tree. And I I really wanted, I didn't want a kid that spent every weekend inside a mall or watching a movie theater always in air conditioning. I think that's so true. And I think it leads into the point you made in the book that we are in a culture that demands comfort. One of the things I fought my own mother about, you know, when my son did get the, he did have the jaw problem and surgery and all of that. And then as he was I felt not needing to be on pills anymore, she would fight me and say, Well, I'm gonna go get some in my name then because I don't want him to suffer withdrawal. And I you know, we weren't <laughs> educated yeah. now, but I mean it was a death match against her because I yeah. would say he needs to he needs to feel this. He needs to suffer, he needs to go yeah. through something. You gotta go through stuff. You can't cripple people from going through anything. I think we are truly in a culture of that.
2: I totally agree. And that was also again another thing that kind Canada- of emerged as an idea that I needed to consider, that I had not considered when I started the book, you know, that that this was uh, the comfort culture, the desire to be, the desire to avoid all inconvenience that kind of thing was a big part of this, you know. And again, it's a big difference between life-mangling, horrible, life-mangling pain, which unfortunately some people in the country do suffer from, and other things, which is just discomfort. Right. I was very surprised to learn as I got into this, the, the amount of people, they're not of kids usually because it's usually young kids, who get their wisdom teeth out and are given huge bottles yeah. of opioids. To, to I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm talking, I think I'm on, the 12th anecdote that I've heard on the road when I speak at different places around the country, I think I've heard 12 now anecdotes of parents telling me that their kids died of heroin overdose that began with an addiction to pain pills after yep. wisdom tooth extraction. Why you need to opioids after wisdom tooth extraction for most, most are fairly common. They're very routine. You just take them out. Mine were. I got four yeah. wisdom teeth taken out back years and years ago. no. Yeah, they were. it was a little painful. It's something you deal with for two days. And then, you know, ibuprofen or whatever is fine, uh, I think, for most of them. There's some of them that are really, really bad, and maybe that's when you need it. But the idea was dose them with huge bottles of the stuff, enough for 30 days worth of pain, even though the pain is going to last two or three days. And that's where the addiction frequently yeah. arises. Or those pills, if they're not, best you can say is that they're never used. The, the worst you can say is that they leak out of the black market or find their way to some high school party and, <laughs> and create damage for other people who never had the pills prescribed for them. That's also what happens, you know. So it's that like, this whole story to me boils down to this. as They hit me on the road one time. It's the agony that you create in your search for a pain-free life. That's what Ooh, this story yes. boils down to.
1: Yeah. You said also opiates are the most private and selfish of drugs and I have experienced this to be the truth within my own family. It it is private, it creates silence and it's a very yeah. selfish addiction unfortunately.
2: That's the drug it the drug that creates of all the illicit the illegal drugs we could use, it's the one that most creates isolation where you just kind of retreat into the opiate class of drugs. So pills, heroin, fentanyl whatever it is you retreat into a kind of a, a little bubble. And then also you turn your back on old pursuits and activities and people that you used to hang out with. And, and you just want to be alone or with people who use dope, talk about dope, whatever, that kind of, that, that's the world you want to be a part of. And it's, all, it's an interesting thing because the drug feeds on isolation and it, then it, it tends to create, it grows from isolation. And then it also tends to create more uh, isolation once people are, are addicted. And that's what struck me. I, I was a crime reporter during the crack epidemic early on in my career, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And I worked in a town that was overwhelmed with crack. And I noticed there that the, the key hallmark institution was the crack house. And that was usually a very public place, maybe an apartment, an abandoned building or a rental house or whatever that got taken over by the, by the users and stuff. And it was very public. But this epidemic, the hallmark institution is the private bedroom it's yeah. a place that's where a lot of people go to hide their dope, shoot up, whatever, or use their dope, and that's where the, a lot of them die. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting that those private bedrooms are kind of that very isolated, quiet, pl- alone place. And it's just uh, again, the heroin is really or opiates are really just this this poster drug for our time because they involve people retreating from others, from community. That's the truth. The, into into total isolation.
1: Yeah, that is the truth. There's so much that I think this book covers that people have to read to um, to even experience it. I, I was obsessed with the business of doctor's appointments and Chillicothe chill and how there was an assembly line of stealing from Walmart, selling things, yeah. trading. I mean, that was so fast. I've been, that was the only Walmart available to people in Columbus for a long time. So every place that was described, I mean, I could just picture it when I was reading it and how strategic people were And each of them had a role to play. That was phenomenal.
2: I think that Walmart, uh, we've talked a lot about in this country, read a lot about Walmart and the low wages that it pays and how that, uh, you know, a lot of people work at Walmart and then also have to apply for food stamps. And there's this feeling like whenever Walmart comes into town, everything collapses almost, you know, Main Street dies, basically, if it isn't dead already, but certainly uh, everything else collapses. But we, we have not spent a lot of time talking about is uh, how Walmart part contributes to the opiate epidemic. And that is through stuff, uh, making it easier for people to steal stuff. No place is easier to steal from than Walmart. I, I, I'm pretty convinced of that after talking with a lot of addicts because they don't care. They don't build, they don't invest in, in, in security in their stores and they have these, re- these greeters who are very old and are not yeah. gonna face off with you about anything, that you don't have the feeling like there's some place, that this is a place where the people have thought out how not to, to allow shoplifting. It's more like, well, that's just part of the business and that's part of the bottom line, that's part of the cost of doing business. But the problem there is, that's fine, if you, wanna, if you, if you don't want to actively and, and very aggressively fight shoplifting, that's your decision as a business. But the problem is that Walmart in so many towns where this got problem got really very severe, uh, was about the only place you could shop. So it ended up being the place where people stole what they needed for the day very often. And if, of course if you got caught and you got kicked out of there, they knew who you were, well, almost any place, 20 mile direction, 20 miles in almost any direction, there's another Walmart you could go to. And so after you've worn out your welcome with your relatives, you've stolen their lawnmower twice or whatever and after you've done all these things that the, the addiction is just so, it's you know, demanding that you do, then at that point, Walmart becomes a place where it would became very easy to steal stuff, particularly if you are very, very committed to that idea of doing that. I think it, one reason for that was that because Walmart did not invest properly in designing its stores, that's my understanding anyway, talking with some people, folks who've who've studied this, but also in the kind of security that you actually need uh, because that's, a, that's an extra cost. They are trying to, you know, so if it's nine bucks an hour, you don't want to pay a whole lot more people nine bucks an hour or 10 or 11 or whatever it's going to require. All of that is part of this story as well, it seems to me, that, that Walmart took the place of real Main Streets. And granted, Walmart is cheaper than your mom and pop hardware store or, or electronic store on Main Street but you know you pay a real real high price for those low uh, high costs for those low low prices you know and i think a lot of those towns know that
1: yeah and plus some of the employees i'm sure were had an opiate issue themselves
2: i talked with one guy who was uh who i won't name a fellow that i want to talk more to former walmart manager who said that when he got on the job you know the the walmart itself was a hive of crime and in fact in the in the areas where they had The car repair mechanic shops of Walmart, some of the cashiers, the women, would turn tricks in these places because Walmart doesn't pay enough to make ends meet, even in small towns, you know.
1: Yeah. Wow. I thought it was ironic. My son had told me just before, and I forgot about this the first time I read it. And then I heard it again. My son was telling me how one of his friends from high school would drive to Florida all the time and do those all day doctor appointments because there was no (laughs) tracking system. And then right after we had a phone conversation about it, he was kind of updating me to what this kid is doing with his life now. That chapter came up and how that was kind of the last state where they could go and get away with that.
2: And and Florida was the problem because... They didn't have any uh, monitoring system for doctors. The mm-hmm. elected officials in Florida, according to at least a, a couple people in Kentucky, a official, the detective and a prosecutor that I talked to in Kentucky, were notoriously uncaring. What, what do we care if a bunch of hillbillies come down here and buy a bunch of pills and take them home? They're leaving money. That's good, right? It was outrageous. It was an outrageous attitude, and it was an outrageous uh, effect. Uh, because what it meant was huge supplies of pills would migrate north to southern Ohio and Kentucky and West Virginia, which is where a lot of those clients came from. But eventually, those pills don't just stay in Appalachia; they stay don't just go to Appalachia. They also stay in Florida. More Floridians began getting addicted too, yeah. because this state just viewed these these quack pain clinics where you don't where you go and you get almost. There's, there's very little pretense. You know, you go and you get some wink, and I got a pain back here. Okay, fine. There you go. Here's your pills. Here's your prescription. And by the way, we have a pharmacy around connected to our yeah, next door to our place next door or whatever around the corner. What happened? There. And long lines. And every you know every every day was like a kind of a, a, a high school reunion. Everyone knew each other from, from town in Kentucky or West Virginia or, or Ohio, and that's what created that huge boom in pain clinics in um, in Florida. It also what what created a huge amount of of addiction in in Florida because this is a supply story. You unleash on a population a very high uh, uh, amount of very potent legal drugs, and it will create addiction, and that's exactly what happened here, and it it happens everywhere, and just Florida thought they could get away with it because they were making all this money from these quack pain clinics and all this money, and I was like, thinking about it later, thinking, are they insane? Were they were Were they insane? Yes, they were. They were like drugged by the money or something. Whatever the case, they didn't get onto it for several years. There were several years when it was clearly a problem. They didn't do almost anything about it. And then they act. But by then, their own people are getting addicted.
1: Yeah. And then like the death rate is undeniable. And it's a young death rate. That was when I think things began to... Get become more noticeable, the change that change the sure. life expect, expectancy in this country. That has come down sure. now. My son's generation, my son yeah. has had more people die from Ohio to L.A. in, in his 20s than I, uh, friends die, than I've had in 30 years.
2: Right, exactly. And I think also, you know, one thing, hunch, this is a hunch only. I'm not sure that this is the case, but my feeling is this talk about this deepening a wage gap and the the, the you know the inequality in wages and so on. I think some part of that must be connected to the opiate epidemic because so many people are so strung out that they cannot really work. They, there's a lot of jobs that can that that go begging have been for several years now. I was in uh, 2016. I was in uh, in southern Indiana and I saw all these distribution warehouses down there. All oh, there's like thousands of jobs. No one wanted. No one would. Uh, You know, no one worked because they they were uh, a lot of more just strung out, you know, and I'm just wondering how much of that, too. There's I think there's a lot of things once you dig into it. Yeah, you find this epidemic and the connected uh, issues uh, behind it.
1: Yeah, it's it's so far reaching. And let's just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
2: This episode is sponsored by CCSHM, the Community Coalition for a Safe and Healthy Morris, whose mission is to prevent and reduce substance use throughout the lifespan through collaboration, education, and community-wide change. CCSHM partners with CARES, the Center for Addiction Recovery, Education, and Success, to bring prevention and recovery services to communities throughout Morris County and New Jersey. CCSHM and CARES are projects of Morris County Prevention is Key. Go to safehealthymorris.org or CARESNJ.org or call 973 625 1998.
1: Another family member had written in and asked me to ask you about the business model of the Jalisco Boys, how that came about and was so successful, and with the rapid turnover of personnel and their nonviolent aspect. And yeah. he wanted to know how were these dealers able to divorce themselves from the morality and ethics?
2: It's a very good question, and one that I asked a few guys. I guess the most thoughtful guy, one guy kind of tried to deny that he knew or that this was, you know, that's, I guess, one approach. Another guy knew perfectly well. And he said, you know, here's the thing when you are poor and you are relentlessly poor, like there's just no, all of a sudden you see an opportunity to finally not be. Yeah, the, mo- the money clouds everything. He told me my mother hated drugs. You know, you should know Mexican small towns are more conservative than American small towns. Right. I mean, this is, but when you are extraordinarily poor and everybody around you is poor and all of a sudden there comes an opportunity to not be. Uh, wow. It does a lot on the on the morals of uh, the moral compass of twists that rejiggers the moral compass significantly i think that's a big a big part of it i think some guys didn't know at least initially what they were doing or what they were selling or the the depth of despair that it drove yes. people that's probably what they didn't exactly know because truth is heroin in in mexico is really not very well known very few heroin addicts in mexico really i didn't know any wow there yeah it does now there are lots of alcoholics a lot of kids on the street who sniffs shoe glue yeah. there's uh you know yeah marijuana, fairly common in some areas, and cocaine and methamphetamine now are, are big deals. But heroin is not a drug that you see used very often. There's not a, a long culture of it or history of it. And on the contrary, it's viewed as really, really vile. And so people... Wow. People that's not I that's agree. Yeah, but it's definitely the case. And But... You know, people aren't beyond selling it, particularly when they see that this is going to make them the big guy, that this is going to uh, solve the, their, their poverty. This is going to make them the man that everybody respects. That is a narcotic right there. My second book was about a lot of that, that in Mexico, when, when you are poor, it's not just that you have a lot of money. Part of being poor in Mexico is that you are humiliated for not having a lot of money, and you are humiliated by people who once were about as poor as you were. Right, and and that is a big. So, leaving poverty is as much about ending humiliation.
1: Wow! Yeah.
2: As it is about getting just more money and a better house and better shoes, you know what I mean? And and there's a fabulous T-shirt that I'm kicking myself now I didn't buy in a liquor store in South Central L.A. And it was it said in Spanish. It said La vida recia. Porque cuando eres pobre, te humillan. and the, the, that in Spanish is the fast life really the drug life colon because when they when you're poor they humiliate you. That is in a nutshell that's it. that's what drove those guys to what they did.
1: I you know I heard a speaker a while ago say that she was learning how to be um, a counselor and in, in one of her classes somebody had said if you could have one wish granted what would it be And she said, I would wish to win the lottery and he said why? What feelings would that present? And she said, freedom, security, acceptance, and peace. And he said, well, then why don't you just seek those things? And it's interesting that it's not just that they're wanting this quick fix or quick cash or whatever. It's a deeper sense of security and worth and value. And I think that's what people think the pills are going to provide.
2: I, I agree. I was going to say that this is their own narcotic. This is the people up here are addicted to the pills that provide this kind of feeling of contentment or whatever, avoidance of pain or what have you. And down there, it's the idea that they could go home a king, you know, that they could go yeah. home and spread the money around and spend it like there's no tomorrow until it runs out in six weeks. And then all those newfound friends maybe aren't so friendly anymore. And then they have to get back on that same wheel and go back up to the United States and sell more. And they, because they cannot then go back to the jobs that they used to do, which is bakeries and construction working and, and butcher shops and uh, avocado farming and that kind of stuff would lead nowhere. You cannot really go back to that. That's Once true. you've been yeah, up, you know, making all this money and you buy yourself a New Year's car. And you have all these
1: Levi's you, they really want to that And all
2: Levi's. that, the, 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 the pants. Actually, you know, nowadays, the thing is not so much... Uh, Levi's 501s. It's like it's like designer jeans, like Guess and Tommy Hilfiger and all that. But in the time when this thing was expanding, uh, in the 1990s, early 2000s, I know because I lived in Mexico then. The gold standard of rural men's Mex- Mexican men's wear was Levi's 501s. They were they were everybody wanted them, and I they were. I thought that was penny. the
1: fascinating part yeah. of it. So fascinating.
2: Now it's changed. People's tastes have elevated and now they have to have designer jeans, no longer Levi's. But but at the time when the thing was expanding to all these new regions, the way they got labor was, look, this is what you can get. And people saw it. They didn't need to be told. They could see so-and-so returning and having a... uh, having a, uh, you know, a party in the plaza and all the girls flocking to him yeah. And he's got these new jeans and got a new cowboy. And it, 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 people saw that that's what heroin brought you. If you're poor and 17, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. That is a narcotic.
1: You're a sudden rock star. I thought yeah. it was amazing that when they would blend into our cultures and they would drive Toyota Corollas and work washing dishes while they were, you know, yeah. climbing. But they
2: didn't. They didn't send. They sent their money home. They don't want to be right. noticed here. They want to be noticed back home. That's where they want to be. The king. I don't That's care why about. We being didn't there. see
1: it a lot of it here.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: You know, you uncover so much in this book. So I wondered: Were you threatened, or attacked, or challenged in any way during the process? I mean, even internally. No
2: no i mean challenged only by my my desire to let the facts lead me somewhere else that was wonderful it's healthy but it it takes some some discipline to not say but i was writing about this you know oh yeah uh, but no threatened or anything no because you know it's over the idea that Geraldo rivera he likes to show how much he was risking his life for his story truth is i mean there are some reporters who who do go down at some very dangerous areas I think a lot of stories can be had much more safely. And so I, I did go down to Jalisco. I spent five days down there uh, one time, but not being an idiot. Uh, and then also, I would say that a lot of people, uh, that, that I, I tried to find a lot of people who were in jail. Jail is where, pe- or prison. People, prison is where people are, are more um, thoughtful. It's a much better place to do an interview with somebody than out on the street. Wow. Out on the street, there's all these other issues. But in jail, people really, I found, People have really spent a lot of time thinking about what they've done and the deeper consequences. Yeah, definitely. So that's why I prefer it.
1: Wow, oh, you know, I, just as a side note, there's a football player from Ohio, Maurice Claret. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. But I,
2: I met him, yeah, sure.
1: Oh, great! Well, he does this podcast called Business and Biceps, and I've listened to it. And he had, you know, spent some time in prison and had seriously become introspective and well-read. Yeah. And the way he, it was like it, it armed him with wisdom, and he, the way he flows in conversation, it's. Profound.
2: (laughs) I didn't know that that was his background, but I was impressed with the guy when I met him. This was a couple, three years, a couple years ago uh, at an event when I was speaking. And yeah, I mean, the guy seemed very centered. Right. And very... uh, And uh, he claims
1: uh, that happened in prison.
2: Yeah. And I think... Prison can be that for the right person. Uh, A lot of people, I found it, I found it, frankly, when I, I did lots and lots of interviews with LA gang members in prison, particularly the guys who were between 35 and up and 45 years old right in there. A lot of them had dropped out. A lot of them had spent a lot of time in the stupid gang world and then came to view it the same way boys come to view baseball cards. Once they discover girls, they look back at baseball cards and go, oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> Why did I ever mess around with that stuff? Well, that's the same way that they, a lot of gang members come to feel uh, once they get out of the gang world. they like, listening to them talk was very, very interesting, I have to say. And, that's, and, and so I, I heard some of that too uh, with some of these trafficker guys.
1: Wow, yeah. I'm, I love that you wrapped it up with wellness about how, again, we need wellness. And a lot of times somebody has to have a crisis of health or something that opens their eyes to their habits and what the yeah. treatment is you, you ended it. I loved that tra- chapter. Right.
2: And I, I did not know that either. All of that is new. You know, it's like all of the talking about that. I began to realize, yes, that's how I, why I began to stop. I stopped drinking sodas. Yeah. And, and all that stuff. Let that, let those, that the sugar lobby is like a big drug trafficking lobby, if you ask me. And so I, you know, and it, it, it got back to that because in the end, that 's what we have, you know we can try to uh, get legislation passed that forces drug companies to behave a certain way or or not stop behaving a certain way and, and all that we can do all that and and we should and we live in a democracy and a civic uh, we are civic citizens of this country, so we should be involved in civic affairs, and we should do all that, but in the end, what it really gets down to is you and, and changing and doing the work that is at first hard, but then becomes easier, frankly, changing yeah. your own uh, approach, saying and questioning, do I really need that? Do I really want to buy that liter of Pepsi Cola? You know, no, you do not. You don't right. need that. Crap. And, and saying to yourself, we. so many people bemoan the lack of personal responsibility. And yet this entire epidemic it grows from lack of personal responsibility, in my opinion. And that's, that's one of the roots, there are many roots, but one, one of the roots is that people don't understand that they, that when you go to a doctor and say, doctor, I'd want to feel no pain, that that is not a realistic uh, option frequently. And, and it's certainly not if you are not willing then to also do the work yourself and, and make some of the, the changes in your own life.
1: I like to allow my son the space and dignity to accomplish a goal. And if he gets yeah. the victory, it's not my victory. It's his victory. He, wrote, he has its strength for the next thing. I work for an organization. I do a lot of podcasting and blogging. It's called Allies in Recovery. And one of the things they teach is called the craft method. And it really focuses on the family's response to the person who's addicted. And I think that's as part, that's part of it as much as the person who's addicted is that, We all need each other. It is about taking care of each other and taking care of yourself. The addict's behavior screams the loudest, but there's ripple effects in the family and definitely families, need. I mean, we need to work on ourselves. And if there's anything I think this epidemic has woke people up to, it's that families need to do the work. You can't just be silent and not be introspective or self-aware. We can't just go on with being haphazard with how we treat each other. We really have to modify our behavior and how we respond to each other.
2: Yeah, I agree. I totally, and, and that's kind of what I, I came to conclude. Yeah,
1: yeah. Your final point I have read was um, that it's about taking care of each other too, and I I thought this yeah. was really powerfully true.
2: And that's it gets back to community, but gets back to participating in things with our neighbors and our townsfolk and and what have you. It's it gets back to funding. Sometimes it gets yeah. back to. Should we build that park? Should we build that, that whatever in, in town and allow us to do this? Should we should we um help sponsor that that uh, Fourth of July fireworks thing? What all that kind of stuff, you know? It, it seems like we want to get away with and frankly, if you ask me in the end, I kind of thought it also gets back to us paying taxes. know, <laughs> it's weird. I began to I lived in a country where uh Mexico, where everybody hated paying taxes and could avoid paying taxes. No one likes paying taxes necessarily. It depends on how well easily you can avoid it and in Mexico you can avoid it very easily. I don't want to live like, you know, that country suffers mightily from that attitude. And so it's, it's a kind of a community aspect to it that um, again, I did not expect when I started out, but but became impossible to avoid the further I got into the whole research.
1: Yeah, it's like taking care of each other and doing the right thing. Um, Yeah. I wanted to just kind of conclude. You come highly recommended, obviously, by the Addicts Parents United, which is a big organization founded here locally, but they're also national, the Stewarts, And then I met with, uh, I just recorded with the Whitehall Fire Department, Chris Minapace. Yeah, we're doing things here. To, I think we're all trying to work in unison with the families and people are starting to make progress. And, you know, like Ohio is the heart of it all. And just like you said, Ohio was ground zero for this scourge. I think Ohio is making great strides to turn. Yes,
2: And I, I could not agree more. I'm not doing say just Ohio. I have seen people all across this country, kind of come together on this topic and work together and find new ways of working together and break down those silos and get to know one another. And even in small counties where you think they would know each other, they don't, you know, and, 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 and it's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. And I am always left kind of uh, breathless almost by it, you know, like, wow, that is amazing. The key, th- the thing though, is that it's not sexy. There, it's not like some big, big splashy thing. You know, it's small, it's small work. It's small steps. It's small increments, you know, and, but yeah. that's good. That's good. That's really, and it's really good. thankless
1: for a time. It's getting your, it your can be. dirty, right. And the front lines and, 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 and
2: because none line. of that is very sexy. It's not going to make the evening news, but, Right. Uh, that's the, that's the way, f- I mean, that's my hunch. I'm a reporter, that's all, but um, that's my hunch that that's the way forward. And people are doing it. We just have to keep on.
1: Keep on and adding to our numbers. And in my opinion, I think everyone, whether you think this epidemic touches your life or not, or you're from Ohio or not, I think everyone needs to read Dreamland. You can get it on audio. There's no excuse not to read it or at least listen to it. This is one of the most brilliantly informative books I have ever read. I can't thank you enough for coming on, not only the work you've done with this book, but for coming on today and sharing. I know my listeners are going to get so much out of this. And if they want to reach out to you, is that possible? Is that okay with you?
2: At my, of course it is. At my website, you can find my email. It's uh, samkinyonos.com. Uh, my email is Sam seven at Yahoo. Fine. Or I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Follow me on those. That's fine. And I just want to say thank you very, very, very much for doing this and for uh, your interest in, in my work. It's really gratifying. Annie, Thanks very much for doing it.
1: Thank you so much. And I think you're speaking in Ohio soon. Is that right?
2: Uh, yes. Where I'm speaking in Tiffin, Ohio in, uh on the 8th of November, and I'm speaking at a conference in uh, Columbus in, in December. We awesome. Well, We
1: will definitely be following your work. And again, I can't thank you enough. Powerfully impacted my life. And I'm, I know my listeners agree. So with that said, that is all for now. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's Allies in Recovery, all one word. Net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.